Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the uh, book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll be looking at this uh, chapter in just a moment. Uh, sometime over the next uh, couple of weeks, if you have not already, you will probably sit down to enjoy a few minutes of the Winter Olympics. Uh, do you have a favorite uh, sport that you're looking forward to watching uh, on television? Uh, the most popular, support, uh, most popular sport for television audiences, do you know what it is? Figure skating. Figure skating without a doubt. Um, among the competitors, you will see men's and women's skaters Rachel Flad and Jeremy Abbott and Johnny Weir. Uh, you'll also see pairs figure skating, uh, Katie Denny and Jeremy Barrett. Uh, which do you think is the most difficult thing to do? Individual figure skating or pairs figure skating? Which demands more skill, more practice, more effort? Which is more artistic? Now, the obvious answer to that question is neither of them. Uh, they each have their own set of skills, their own individual challenges, and their own particular artistry. There's not one that is better uh, or more artistic than the other. Yet, if life were figure skating, you must admit that we spend a lot more time at church thinking and talking about pairs than about men's and women's. This morning, we're going to launch a month-long study of what the Bible says about singleness. Uh, we usually work our way systematically through books of the Bible, but during the month of February, in the first week of March, we're going to talk about this particular topic. And I want to begin by giving you three reasons why this study is worth pursuing. Why is it worth talking about singleness at church? Here's three reasons. First, there is an increasing number of single adults in the world. Increasing number of single adults in the world. Uh, due to divorce, delayed marriage, and increase in cohabitation, single adults are one of the fastest growing demographics in the country. According to January 2007 story in the New York Times, 51% of women lived without a spouse in 2006. That was the first time ever that more women have lived without a spouse than with a spouse. Uh, in 1970, 36% of American adults were unmarried, one, about one-third in 1970. Today the figure is 44, closer to a half. Here are some statistics about delayed marriage. Uh, today, the average man marries at age 27.1 years. Uh, the average woman at 25.3 years. In 1960, 50 years ago, men married at 22.8 and women at 20.3. Men and women are spending five years longer as single adults than they did about 50 years ago. The single adult population is growing in our world, and unfortunately, most of them are outside of the church and not inside of the church. Why talk about singleness? Here's a second reason. Churches generally do not address the single adult population well. This is an area that churches don't have a good track record in. Most single adults believe that church is not for them, it's for families. I read of a church not too long ago where the Sunday school class for people who were in their 20s and 30s was called Pears and Spares. 
which is so bad, it's funny. It's awful. You're either a pear or a spare that we keep in the trunk for emergencies. Uh, Churches sometimes segregate single adults. You get put at the kids' table in the church's life. You know what I'm talking about at the kids' table. When your family got together, uh, when you were growing up, it was great. You'd sit with all your school-aged cousins, and the thrill of the day was to see who could make Cousin Billy laugh hard enough to have milk come out of his nose. That was fun. But how do you get from the kids' table to the adults' table? If you want to fast-track from the kids' table to the adults' table, you get married. You could be 28 years old and a homeowner, uh, but if your 22-year-old sister, your unemployed 22-year-old sister living in your parents' basement is married, she and her husband get first dibs at the adult table. Uh, When do you get to be an adult at church? How do you get to the adult table at church? Uh, Church sometimes responds to singles by segregating them to some side ministry. Sometimes churches, in churches, if you're not segregated into some separate ministry, then since you have so much free time as a single adult, you're available to house sit, babysit, dog sit, run to the dry cleaners for me, rake my lawn, in other words, be my servant. Or if you're not segregated away in some ministry or treated like a servant, you may be the victim of everyone's well-placed intentions to get you married. Here's some lines that you might hear as a single adult. Aren't you married yet? What's a nice girl like you doing unmarried? What you need is a good wife. Found anybody to date yet? I'm praying the Lord will lead you to a good guy. It's too bad he's not married. Don't worry, it's not too late for you. Don't ever say that. I heard of one young woman. She was older. She was a bridesmaid in her younger sister's wedding. And somebody came up to her and said, Don't worry. It's not too late for you. That's like the time my wife was eight months pregnant. She walked into the auditorium and somebody opened both doors and said, Wide load coming through. Don't say that. Don't do that. Bill Flanagan once said, Singleness is not a disease for which the only known cure is marriage. You ever treat single adults around you uh, like that's true, like they have a disease and you need to cure them of it? We don't handle singles very well, which is maybe why they're more out there than in here. Here's the final reason why we're going to talk about singleness. We care about singleness because God does. God has an opinion on singleness. He has a goal for singleness. Marriage, it's true, offers a unique opportunity to glorify God, but so does singleness. Do you know what God intends for you as a single adult? Some people believe that that marriage is uniquely God's domain, and someday, if you're lucky, you might get to play in the big leagues of His will, but as long as you're still single, you're stuck on the farm team. I hope that over the next few weeks, I can help set you free from many of the crippling emotional and social burdens you may be carrying so that you can run the race that God sets before you for however long He sets it before you as a single adult. God cares about how you live your life in these days. 
Here's my plan, Lord willing, this is what we're going to follow. Today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, Then for the next two weeks, I want to consider some of the specific challenges that single adults might face, uh, namely contentment and loneliness. Those two issues we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. I would add sexual purity to that list as a key challenge too. We seem to talk about that a good bit as we move systematically through God's Word, so I I don't intend to devote a specific week to that um, unless there's an outcry from the elders. Hmm. Um, Then, the last week of the series, which is going to be on March 7th, (laughs) I'm afraid that I'm going to undo the three weeks that we've talked about this goodness of involved in being single, uh, but we're going to spend that last week talking about the transition from singleness to marriage. I fear undoing three weeks worth of work by talking about, here's how great singleness is, and the last week, here's how to escape it. <laughs> I fear that, uh, but here's my, my plea. This is an issue that single adults face, and at the end, even of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about it. So like Paul, <laughs> I'm going to talk about the transition from singleness to marriage at the end of this, these four weeks. Well, that's the plan for the next several weeks. Let's begin, though, this morning by considering this chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, that is before us. Let me lay the groundwork here. The congregation in Corinth was one of the most difficult churches that Paul served as an apostle. Um, they were often more influenced in their thinking by Greek philosophy than by the gospel. And Paul wrote the second part of 1 Corinthians, that begins in chapter 7, to answer some of the questions that they had sent him. And their first question was about marriage and singleness. There was a group in Corinth, probably led by some influential women, who rejected marriage. And they rejected marriage because they believed that the human body and everything associated with it was tainted, was polluted, was less than perfect. This is a very Greek idea. In Greek culture, in Paul's day, the body was considered a prison. It was considered uh, something that captures you, that that is is, uh, polluted and that is bad. It's subject to sickness and decay. And your soul, on the other hand, your soul, on the other hand, was beautiful and free and liberated. So everything having to do with your body was bad. Everything having to do with your soul was good. And some in Corinth took the gospel and they inculcated that with that Greek idea. And and so they said no to marriage and no to sex and the things that have to do with the body. Actually, they went in two different directions. On the one hand, some people in Corinth said, since my body doesn't matter and what I do with it doesn't matter, I'm free to go sleep with prostitutes if I want. And Paul addressed them in 1 Corinthians 6. On the other hand, there were people who were saying, since my body is unimportant and what I do with my body doesn't matter, I'm not going to do anything at all with my body. There were Corinthian wives or Corinthian husbands going to their spouses and saying, since I'm a Christian, my life is above. Uh, I'm giving up whatever is earthly, whatever is bodily, whatever is temporal. So no more marriage, no more intimacy, or anything else like that. As part of their rejection of marriage, they appealed to the Apostle Paul. See, Paul's single. That's the best way to live. You should be single. You shouldn't engage in bodily things. 
And they had a motto. Paul quoted their motto in verse 1. It is good for a man not to marry. Oh, yes, that's what they said. So in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is trying to accomplish three things. This is what he wants to do. It's a challenging passage of Scripture. Uh, There's difficult issues here, but here's basically what Paul is trying to accomplish. First, he wants to challenge them about their rejection of physical intimacy in marriage. That's what the first few verses of uh, 1 Corinthians 7 are, are about. He wants to challenge them about their understanding of the human body. Second, he wants to uphold the value of marriage. He wants to say to them, marriage is a good thing. If you're ever married, if you're married, have you ever read 1 Corinthians 7 and wondered if you made a bad choice, if you made a second best decision? It's a confusing passage of Scripture. Paul seems to downplay marriage quite a bit. Everybody in the whole world says marriage is wonderful, uh, except for 1 Corinthians 7. What's Paul doing here? Paul's point is not to denigrate marriage. In response to their motto, it is good for a man not to marry a woman, you could bring out Genesis 1 where God says it is not good for man to be alone. And Paul is upholding marriage. He says over and over again, it is not a sin to marry. It is not a sin to marry. If you read 1 Corinthians 7 and think that you have chosen second best, you're not reading it properly. Here's his third goal, though, that Paul has in mind. He wants to describe the benefits of singleness. Paul agrees with the Corinthians that singleness has certain advantages, but he does not agree with their reasons for rejecting marriage. Have you ever had anybody come up to you and, and say, say that they have a good idea, they want to do something that's good for a really wrong reason? Have you ever had that happen? Somebody, imagine somebody comes up to you and says, I'm going to be a vegetarian. Oh, really? Why are you going to be a vegetarian? Well, I'm going to be a vegetarian because eating meat turns your face green. You say, well, that, that's kind of silly. Um, being a vegetarian is, is a fine choice. You can do that if you want. Eating meat is not bad. God says that eating meat is okay. And as for your face turning green, well, that's just dumb. So what Paul is trying to do in 1 Corinthians 7 is he's coming to these people and he's saying, singleness is good, it's fine, it's many advantages. Marriage is not bad though. God made marriage, it's, it's good. And being single for the reason you want to be single because you think the body is bad is, is just wrong. So that's what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. With that in mind, what I want to do this morning is I want you to see four things in this chapter about singleness. And my goal is to give you a healthy vision for singleness. This is the central place that the Bible talks about singleness. What does God want? What does God expect from you as a single adult? Here are four things to consider. First, singleness demands dependence on the grace of God. Singleness demands dependence on the grace of God. In verse 7, Paul's been speaking to married men and women in the congregation, and then in verse 7 he says, I wish that all people, all men, were as I am, that is, single. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, and one has another, another has that gift. By gift, again, Paul's referring to his single state. Some of you say, singleness is a gift? Yeah, 
It's a gift nobody wants. It's like a gift of a tumor. Nobody wants that present. Actually, the word translated gift here is the word charisma, which in 1 Corinthians 12 refers to spiritual gifts. Charisma is a word related to God's grace, His kind enablement for life. Out of God's kindness and God's generosity, God gives to us what we need to live the life that He has called us to. If you're going to follow Christ as a single adult, it will involve divine enablement, special help from God. This will not come naturally. What I'm going to describe to you as we move through 1 Corinthians 7 is not going to be easy. You will not know how to do what Paul calls you to do by instinct. Paul's actually talking about divine enablement in two different directions. He says one gift, another has that gift. Um, It takes special grace to be married and it takes special grace to be single. Now when we talk about singleness as a gift, it raises some questions. Maybe you've asked yourself these questions. Um, Maybe you've wondered, do I have the gift of singleness? And if I do have the gift of singleness, how do I know that I have the gift of singleness? Hmm. One answer that I once uh, heard to that question is that you can tell if you have the gift of singleness if being single is easy for you. That is neither true nor helpful. Uh, Ask people who have the gift of marriage if having that gift makes marriage easy. All the married people say, "Uh uh-huh. By gifting, we're not talking about easy living here. A related question is about calling. Has God called me to be single? Most people would rather God call them to Africa as missionaries than God call them to live in Millersville as a single adult. Is this His will for my life? Does God want me to be single? You know, behind the, that question is an image that I don't think is very helpful. Some people picture God in heaven pointing at people uh, and giving gifts for singleness or marriage, like duck, duck, goose. Married, married, single. Married, married, single. Married, married, single. Let's go as far as the text does. I want to go as far as the text does and no farther. If you are single right now, today... If you're single right now today, this is a brilliant deduction, you'll be amazed at it. If you're single right now today, it is God's will for you to be single today. Right now. Maybe not next year. Maybe not next month. I don't know. But today, it is God's call on your life to glorify Him as a single adult. And if you're going to follow Christ well, you need God's grace. If you're going to get this right, it will be because you are crying out to God for help. Singleness demands uh, dependence on, on God's grace. Second, notice this from the text here. Singleness makes sense in times of crisis. Singleness makes sense in times of crisis. Uh, Look at verse 25. Paul's writing about a specific situation that I want to address here. Verse 25. Now about virgins. One commentator argues that he's referring to unmarried young men there. Now about unmarried young men, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. 
What Paul is saying there is he's not saying that his advice here is uninspired, like it doesn't belong in the Bible, like he wrote 1 Corinthians 6 by the Holy Spirit and 1 Corinthians 7, he's just kind of winging it. That is not what he's saying. What he's saying is that Jesus, the Lord, did not directly address this issue, but he, as an apostle, who is trustworthy as an apostle, is going to address the issue. That's the distinction that Paul is making there. Um, Just previously, he had been talking about divorce, and Jesus spoke about divorce. He did not talk about singleness like this, like Paul is going to here. Verse 26. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Um, Look down at verse 29. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. Paul is anticipating a specific period of persecution and suffering for the church. My microphone is falling apart. Paul's anticipating a specific time of persecution for the church. The emperor Nero is going to uh, uh, attain the throne very soon, and Christians were going to face persecution. And it is easier to face persecution when you do not have family ties. Who's going to care for your wife? Who's going to care for your husband? Who's going to care for your three-year-old daughter after you've been fed to the lions? This is not a pressing concern for us in the United States, but if you're a Christian in Uganda, you need to read this very seriously. It is dangerous to be an evangelical Christian in India or in China. The United States is a historical anomaly. The rest of the world is not like this. And in days and seasons of persecution, those without family ties will find the road to be a bit easier. You know the name John Bunyan? John Bunyan spent 12 years in prison in Great Britain for preaching the gospel. It was in prison that he started writing Pilgrim's Progress. When John Bunyan was first arrested, he had four children at home, the oldest of whom was blind, and his wife was pregnant with their uh, a fifth child. Listen to what Bunyan wrote. The parting with my wife and poor children hath often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. And that not only because I somewhat am too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. Paul wrote what he did in 1 Corinthians 7 to spare believers from this sorrow. John Piper has said that he does not believe that Muslim countries uh, will be one for the gospel without serious sacrifice on the part of the church. He means men and women who will go to Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia and Morocco and will die for the gospel. We need an army of young men and women unattached in this world who will go and preach Christ. And singleness makes sense in times and places of crisis. Third, notice this here. 
The gospel changes the storyline of your life as a single adult. The gospel changes the storyline of your life as a single adult. Uh, Let me explain what I mean and then I want to show it to you in the text. You have in your mind a storyline for your life. Expectations about how you want your life to go. Uh, It's shaped by all kinds of things, this storyline that you have. It's shaped by examples. It's shaped by your family, by your friends, stories you've read, uh, books, movies. Here's a very typical American storyline. You're going to graduate from high school or college, and perhaps in college or high school, you're going to meet the man, the woman of your dreams. You're going to get married. You're going to buy a house. You're going to start having children. You're going to raise those kids. You're going to be a soccer mom or a soccer dad. You're going to uh, see them married. You're going to enjoy your grandchildren, retire from your job, play golf, go on a cruise, and die old together with your beloved. It's a very basic plot line, isn't it, for what Americans expect in this life? Some of you are living that life right now. The very basic storyline. Do you know the problem with that storyline? Is that you can have all of that life and be completely godless. You do not need the gospel. You do not need Christ at all. He makes no appearance in 99% of the storylines that our culture creates in this world. Disney and Mattel want to sell your kids stories about princesses and castles and princes. They do not sell stories about redeemers. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, though, the storyline changes. You get a new plot for your life. Paul describes that in two ways. He does it in verses 17 through 24. We won't look at that paragraph, but in that paragraph, Paul is saying that the gospel is triumphant in your life even over things like whether you're a Jew or Gentile or whether you're slave or free. That's how significant the gospel is in changing the trajectory of your life. Look, though, at verse 29 and following, where Paul is talking about how the gospel changes the storyline of your life. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Paul here is talking about basic human emotions basic human functions, and in light of the gospel, they take on a new hue, a new importance, a new unimportance. They're different now because of the gospel. Because of the gospel, you think differently about buying and selling and rejoicing and grieving. You have different dreams. You have different goals. How attached are you to your dream of finding Mr. Right or Miss Right? of that home that you can call your own? How attached are you to your retirement package or of growing old in the company of your children and grandchildren? Has the gospel changed how you think about those dreams implanted in you by Cinderella and by Sleeping Beauty? 
This is why Jesus pressed that rich man the way he did. Do you remember the story of the rich man in the Gospels? We're going to look at it in a few uh, weeks. It's in, it's in Mark. And this rich man came to Jesus one day and he said, How can I know for sure I'm going to heaven? And Jesus said to him, Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. Now, Jesus was not telling him that he could buy his way into heaven through charity. Rather, he was pressing this man on his attitude toward what he owned, uh, what he bought, as verse um, uh, 30 and 31 say, the, the things that he bought, the things that he owned. You think about life and you think about love and you think about money differently on the Calvary Road than you think about them if you're not on the Calvary Road. Yeah, the Bible tells us this is, this is actually evidence of the fact that we are separated from God, that our lives in this world are, are broken. That evidence is that we place too much value on, on what we own or on the relationships that we have. <laughs> My kids are way too impressed by the toys that they get in their Happy Meals. And they're way too discouraged when they break. You know, the chief difference between their attitude and my attitude is that my toys cost a lot more. This is one of the evidences that we're separated from God. We live like the things that we own are eternal, like they're the secret to happiness. It's one of the evidences that I'm out of sync with the God who made me. God himself has come to earth to restore that broken relationship and he did it by dying for us on the cross. He bore in his body the consequences, the due penalty of our rebellion against him. He rose again. He offers life and forgiveness to all who receive it through faith. And when you cross that line of faith, when you, when you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, your storyline changes. Your priorities change. Your values change. Your dreams change change. Don't settle for princes and castles or golf courses and retirement packages. You have the gospel to live for. The message of the reconciling work of Jesus Christ puts everything in a new light. That's why from now on, any relationship that comes into your life has to flow from an expression of your commitment to the gospel. It is unthinkable, unthinkable that you would love someone who does not follow Jesus Christ. It's unthinkable. You know, Paul talks about this in terms of being unequally yoked, which is about more than just marriage. How can you walk in sync with someone who still thinks that the American dream is the way to live life? How can you be in sync with that person? How can you share a, a life with someone whose storyline has not been reshaped to the, by the gospel? Gospel changes the storyline of your life as a single adult. Finally, point number four tells us how, begins to tell us how the gospel changes that storyline. We'll talk about it more in the next few weeks. But here's how the gospel changes that storyline. Singleness, number four, enables undivided devotion to Christ. Singleness enables undivided devotion to Christ. Look with me at verse 32. Verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. 
an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, Paul here at the beginning is talking about the reality of marriage. Marriage necessitates divided loyalty. What he's writing about is not a sin. It is part of your calling as a husband and wife. You should think about Valentine's Day and how you're going to communicate to your beloved that she is the apple of your eye. You should be doing that. Being married, having children, takes an abundant amount of time. And sometimes it is more righteous to play Candyland or basketball than to read the Bible. That's true. Paul here, though, is speaking about two ways to glorify God. The married way and the single way. The married way glorifies God by embodying loyal love over a lifetime. That's why we celebrate in our church when people reach significant milestones in their uh, marriage as they, they hit the big anniversaries that end in O. Uh, we celebrate those. Why? Because marriage glorifies God by uh, showing loyal love over a lifetime. But singleness glorifies God too. How does singleness glorify God? By displaying undivided devotion to Christ. Look again at verse 34. I wonder if this describes you. Verse 34. Uh, in the middle it says, An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. Is that your goal in life? That you would describe yourself as a single adult? You go to church to find a man or because you want to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit? You attend your college ministry because you're interested in meeting people or as an expression of your undivided devotion to the Lord in both body and spirit. That's a, a, a challenging verse. How do single adults uniquely serve the church by modeling a life of undivided devotion? Lauren Winter says it's by displaying a vacancy for God in your life. You have the freedom to model uh, in your life this vacancy for God that, that those who are married have to carve out from Candyland and basketball time. And your calling is to enjoy that undivided devotion, to revel in this freedom, to be thankful for it. There are alternate paths. Are there not for being a single adult in our world? If you're young, you can embrace this season as an opportunity to be a young, swinging single and buy all the toys and go to all the parties and whoop it up as much as possible, the American pie alternative to young singleness. Or you could, you could take the Bridget Jones path, isn't it? Sit home in your bathrobe all day and write in your diary about how you need some man to come and fulfill you. That's another path you could take. If as a widow or a widower, I don't know how, you must battle the temptation toward bitterness and self-pity, wondering why God left you alone here on earth. The alternate path that's offered to divorce men and women is the path of questioning and the path of fear. Why did God let this happen to me? This is never what I intended for my life. Am I going to be alone for the rest of my life? For the next 50 years, am I going to be alone? 
that fear. Paul wants you to lift your eyes from those alternatives and set the pace in our church. Set the pace for what it means to be undivided in your devotion to Christ. Let me give you one example of how this might work. Um, many of you know the name of John Stott. John Stott, the famous British theologian. Um, he has a well-known reading plan. You can find it if you want somewhere online pretty easily. John Stott writes about how he reads. His goal throughout his life has been to read for one hour every day, one half day every week, one day every month, and one week every year. He sets that, a time, aside, uh, that time aside to read. That's a stiff pace. It's easier to follow that stiff pace when you're single, like John Stott is. I can't do that, but I can read 20 minutes every day, or maybe half an hour every day, and John Stott's example challenges me about what I do. Your call as a single adult is to be a pace setter in our congregation. You set the speed for how you serve and what you read in this book and how you pray and when you disciple and how you share the gospel and how you go overseas with your time. You show us what it means to be committed to Christ without divided loyalties. You show how satisfying it can be to follow Christ every day and you cannot do that with a game controller in your hand. And you can't do it if every movie that you watch makes you sigh because Mr. Wright isn't in your life like he's on the screen. This is hard work. This is the work, uh, this is the work that the grace of God does in your life. It's not an easy alternative. But it's the best way to live. It's infinitely better than the, the American Pie or the Bridget Jones way to live. Infinitely better. This is hard. But it's magnificent. And for this hard task, we have Christ. The greatest hero in all of the Bible lived as a single adult. Actually, several of the heroes in the Bible were single adults. I'm thinking specifically of Christ, though. Contrary to Dan Brown, Jesus was not married. And the Bible doesn't say anything really about how he felt about this doesn't say how he dealt with the societal pressure to get married. What's a nice Jewish boy like you not doing not married? <laughs> There's nothing in the Bible that talks about that. Was Jesus ever tempted to be jealous of his married friends? We know that some of the disciples were married. When, when Jesus went home by himself and the disciples went to their houses and they were welcomed by their wives and their kids, was Jesus ever tempted to be jealous about that? He was tempted in all points as we are. Jesus actually said that some people, for the sake of the kingdom of God, would be eunuchs. That is, they would remain single. Jesus could not die the death that he died and be married. At the end of Isaiah 53, it talks about what Jesus did. And it says, he will see the end of his work and he will be satisfied. He'll be satisfied. He did what Paul describes here, undivided devotion to his Father's will. And Christ invites you to that same satisfaction. Lift up your eyes to this. Lift up your eyes from the wallowing, uh, from the, the, the emptiness that this world would offer you. Lift up your eyes to this satisfaction that Paul describes, that Christ lived and run the race that is set before you. Let's pray, shall we?
Father, what Paul challenges us to do is, is hard. It is uh, difficult. It is outside of our expectations and it is not often what we are encouraged to do. Father, for the role that we as a church play in countering what Paul says about the value of singleness, would you forgive us and would you free us? For, for saying silly and insensitive things uh, that, that downplay the value of undivided devotion to you, would you uh, forgive us and deliver us? Father, I'm thankful to you for these uh, men and women who are in our congregation, some divorced, some widowed, some young single adults. Would you work in their lives, Father? I, I, I pray to, to bring about what Paul says, undivided devotion in body and spirit to the Lord. Raise up pace setters in our congregation, Father, who model well for us accountability and, and devotion to Scripture and to, to prayer and to service and to world evangelization. Do you raise up in our own congregation men and women who model this and satisfy them? Wean us, wean them from silliness and satisfy us with this vision set by Paul and modeled by Christ, we pray in our Savior's name. Amen. If you hear this.